0: I think all of us have had the experience. And you can't really say when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen. Maybe you can explain a little of why it happens. That moment when you realize you love somebody. Now, we might think about it in terms for those of us that are married. When we first met the person who would one day become engaged to us and become our spouse. And we think back to when we saw them across a room and the feeling we got. Or somewhere along the way that we thought, maybe I love this person. Maybe I should think about spending the rest of my life with this person. But it may be that you're not yet old enough to be married or hadn't been married yet. But you still know about love. And you know what it means to feel love for someone else. Whether you're a child or a teenager or an adult of any age. It's something that God put within us. Because, as the Bible says, God is love. We're going to talk today in this exposition of the book of Zechariah and being God's people about our relationship with God. And we've got the first four of eight visions that Zechariah had on one night uh, 2,500 years ago, but are recorded in the Bible. And those visions, if you just read through them on your own, you'd go, oh man, this is some weird stuff. What does this mean? But when we look back into the biblical context and the history, and we think about the imagery, we say, this is about how God loves us. The God of the whole universe set aside his people Israel, Judah, then, as his people to love them. And through Christ, we are heirs of that relationship and how God loves us. Henry Blackaby says, and some of you know and have done Experiencing God, a Bible study that went through churches 20-some years ago, and he says that God pursues a continual love relationship with us that is real and personal. If you don't know that one, write that down on top of your sermon outline, because that's kind of the foundation of where we're coming from today with this sermon, that God pursues a continual love relationship with us You might write with me. You. God pursues a continual love relationship with me that is real and personal. It's continual. He doesn't give up. Think about these songs we sang today. Myra aced it in her song selection today. Think about the fact that it's real. In other words, even though we can't see God, we know it's real. We read his Bible. We pray the Holy Spirit is in us and convicts us and works through us and it's personal, that God loves you because there's only one of you. Scripture says that God knit you together in your mother's womb. He knew you before one of your days came to be. Scripture reminds us again and again, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what's been done to us, that God loves us, and He is with us, and He is for us. Sometimes life doesn't feel that way. Circumstances and even our own self or Sometimes psychosis or anxiety or sickness get in the way and try to bring us down and separate us from that relationship with God. But we've got to remember, God loves us and pursues a continual love relationship with us that is real and personal. We've got our scripture memory verse for the month and we'll put that up and let's say that. It features on repentance. Let's read it together. Zechariah 1.3. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Zechariah 1.3. Pray with me. God, our Father, as we think about your love for us, and even as we're reminded from the scripture we just recited that was part of our sermon last week, that the reason you call us to return to you To turn and repent from our wickedness and our sinfulness is because you love us. You don't choose or don't desire to bring condemnation or harm to us, your people. But you desire to bless us because we are obedient to you. And we pursue a love relationship with you as you are pursuing it with us. So God, we thank you for giving us love. That we know what it means to be loved. We know what it means to... Give love. We know what it means to experience the feeling of love. And yeah, it's a feeling, but it's real. And God, we come before you as your people made in your image with the ability and capacity to think and to feel because you made us that way. And our prayer is that as we study these scriptures this morning we would see again, even through these images and illusions, written in an Old Testament way, how you love us. Thank you, God, for your presence among us. And we ask that you speak to us now by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So if you haven't opened your Bibles to Zechariah, please do so. Zechariah, and we're in chapter 1, last week... We covered chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, but the week before that, we set a stage for our uh, Zechariah. And if you weren't here, as it says on the bottom of your sermon outline, you can go at any time, either to our website, and it's southviewbaptist.org backslash podcast, or even on iTunes, Southview Sermons, and you can subscribe, and you can hear me every week if you want to. We hope you're here every week, but if you're not, you can listen that way. But notice these uh, titles that are written in, your Bible probably has titles written in, so they 're not part of scripture they 're written in to help us uh, see the scripture. and so what we 're going to see is we examine the first four of zechariah 's eight visions is their meaning for us today. And I think our next slide, Miss Leslie, walks us through, right? So the first one, you see, my Bible says if you 're looking at your Bible quick and then we 'll look at the screen. My Bible says uh, above Zechariah 1.7, the man among the myrtle trees. But I would say that what does this teach us? It teaches us that God rules His people. All right. Do we not have a slide that has all eight listed in a row? Did that somehow get okay? I emailed folks. Okay. So we'll skip that. Actually, we won't skip it. I'll tell you what it is. All right. So if you look in verse eighteen, verse eighteen. It says in my Bible, four horns and four craftsmen. But what I'm going to tell you that speaks about is God's judgment. So, no, no, we don't want you to do anything. They need to listen to me. Sorry, you got the wrong slide there. There should have been a slide with eight things in it. Forgive me, everybody. And so the third vision starts in chapter 2, verse 1. And that is uh, about God's future for his people. God's future for His people. It's a, this man with a measuring line. And then you see chapter 3, verse 1. My Bible says clean garments for the high priest. But what it's about is God's requirement of holiness for us. And it goes on and on and on. And so uh, we get through the end, or actually the middle, of chapter 6, verse 8, is these four visions. But rather than confuse Leslie and confuse you, let me come back to the Scriptures. And she's already put your first point up there. So... God rules his people. That's on your outline. God rules his people. And that's Zechariah chapter 1 verse 7 through 17. So notice as we start in verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah son of Berechiah, the son of Edu. So during the night I had a vision. So all eight of these visions in the next, all the way through chapter 6, come at one night and one time. And how does Zechariah write them down? He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is, uh, God's Spirit tells him how to write these down, even after he remembers them. But they were this vivid. He said, during the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were a red, brown, and white horses. Now, you get the image, if a man is on a horse and you think about other things you know about Scripture, that the man on a horse generally means war. The man on a horse generally means judgment. The average person in that day and time did not have a horse, but a nation would have horses and they would you know, have guys that were weaponized or chariots then developed and all that sort of stuff. And you get this picture. But then you notice it says he was standing among the myrtle trees. Throughout the Old Testament, myrtle trees are symbolic of God's people, Israel. God's people, Judah, those two nations. And so this red horse symbolizes God's going to do something among His people in the myrtle trees. Now, commentators have made a whole lot of hay over a red horse, red, brown, white. What do the four horses stand for? These four horses of the apocalypse, four horses of different nations that God used to judge Israel. Yes, it could be all those things, but they're not specific. Look next, however, verse 9. What are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Aha! Aha! So what God wants us to know by his angel spokesman, Zechariah asked a broad question, what are these? He didn't say, what nations do these represent? He just says, what are these? Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explains. So the man himself on the horse says these things. They are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole earth at rest and in peace. Isn't that interesting? That at that time it wasn't war, although we get the idea these are guys on horses. They might bring judgment and war. It is rest and peace. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah? So the angel of the Lord is speaking to God now, and he says, what about Jerusalem? What about Judah, the place that Zechariah is prophesying to right now? He says it's been 70 years in the end of verse 12. Verse 13, so the Lord, notice, capital L, capital O, O, capital R, capital D, that's the Lord God, Yahweh. God spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Now, we don't know why God didn't speak directly to Zechariah at this point, but he speaks to the angel. Some believe that this angel is actually Christ in a vision. And uh, it it could be. There's papers written about this thing. It's a pre-incarnate Christ. And Jesus, as the mediator, as he is now of God's grace with us, speaks on God's behalf to Zechariah. And then look at verse 14. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty said. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they added to the calamity. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy. And there my house will be rebuilt. Verse 3 of chapter 1, God tells his people, you return to me. You repent and you come back to me. And now God is saying, I'm going to come back to you. I brought judgment, I brought calamity, but now there's peace and I'm going to restore it. What he's saying is I rule you. And when I bring calamity, I can do that. But now I'm going to bring that calamity, that anger against those who judge you. Verse 17, proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says, my towns will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord again will comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. And I skipped verse 16, the end of it. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. This measuring line, you're going to see this image elsewhere. You've seen it elsewhere in prophet. Just like a carpenter uses a tape. And he's planning out the blessing of his people, Jerusalem. God is saying, I'm going to restore you. Because I'm sovereign. Your application question there asks Where do I see God's sovereignty? Where do I see God's sovereignty? In your life, where do you see that God is in charge and you know it? There's no doubt about it. Sometimes we think we're in charge and we act like we're in charge and and we do pretty good when we're in charge sometimes. But then something happens that shows us that we're fallible or that we're weak or that we can't handle it all on our own. And that's where we need to see the sovereignty of God at work. So this first vision reminds us of God's sovereignty. The second vision that we're going to in verse 18, it reminds us of God's sovereignty over the nations. That second point is that God avenges His people. Now, we don't use this word avenge very often these days. Unless, of course, you're thinking about comic book heroes, and we've got a little clip about that. It's a captivating scene. It's supposed to have audio and we didn't have it. It's a quiet scene. Swarma. It's from which movie, Chris? Avengers. Yeah. At the end of the Avengers, an after credit scene, right? Yep. So the Avengers, the good guys who've just saved the earth from, you know, evil space aliens, are sitting around eating Swarma. Sylvana, my friends or our friends at Sultan's Kite told me that their sales of shawarma went through the roof after this movie came out. That was supposed to be funnier than it was. I'm sorry, friends. God avenges his people. In other words, he's going to take care of his people. Look at verse 18. This is the shortest of the four visions. Zechariah says, then I looked up. And there before me were four horns. And I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem. So in other words, horns, we know from Old Testament history. Then the angel says specifically they scattered it. So these are the nations that scattered Jerusalem and God used to judge in verse 20. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. Now, it's interesting here that it's not for warriors. This is for craftsmen. Hebrew is not as precise a language as or excuse me, yeah, as Greek that the New Testament is written in. This is written in Hebrew. But this word craftsman literally means somebody who works with his hands. This is the same sort of word used for a blacksmith, a bricklayer, a common laborer. So not some guy that's trained in weapons of war, but a man that works hard every day. A blue-collar dude. Listen, to what it says. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, What are these coming to do? He answered, These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise his head, but the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter his people. What he's saying. Is that God's people will be restored, not at this point by any acts of war, but by God's people being obedient and going to work. God avenges his people. Your question in application of that second point is where do I expect God to act today? Where do I expect God to act today? That question presupposes another question: Do you even expect God to act today? How many of us go through our lives and we just live our life? We come to church on Sunday and we go to Sunday school and we talk about things and mainly share our opinions and hopefully get some Bible verses in there. And then we sit in the pew and listen to the pastor preach and we say oh yeah that 's good," and we learn some things but Even though this pastor tries to ask application questions every Sunday, we might not really apply them to us. And I'm asking you, friends, do you expect God to act to show up in your life in a real way today? Yes or no? God loves us and pursues a continuing love relationship with us that is real and personal. Isaac Watts wrote the hymn, and it's hymn number 74 in your hymn book, and I promise I will not sing it. Hymn number 74 in your hymn book in the pew back in front of you. Oh God, our help in ages past. And I bring this up based on what happens as we go through the six verses that are recorded here. Listen. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Under the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. Before the hills and order stood, or earth received her frame, from everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. A thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone, short as the, wrath, or the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. Their fly, forgotten as a dream, dies the opening day. O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Be thou our guard while life shall last in our eternal home. I know that's not scripture, but that's good. Can I get an Amen. Did you hear what Watts was saying to us? He was saying, here's where we've seen God's strong, sovereign in the past. And because God's character is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can count on God's sovereignty and his strength, his rule, and his reign, even to avenge his people when they've been judged in the future. That God is going to care for us So I ask you again, where do I expect God to act today? Miss Tina McCormick is here this morning and Tina's got an issue with trying to find new housing and everything's going to have to fall in place just right for it to have to work out. And we're praying that God shows up for Tina. What about in your life? It may not be an issue to find new housing, but where does God need to show up? What do you need to see Him do? Our scripture reminds us that God is sovereign, that God rules and reigns and He Will avenge his people. Let's move on to chapter two. Your third point on your outline is that God blesses his people. Your third point on your outline, God blesses his people. This is this man with a measuring line. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man, and he had a measuring line in his hand. I asked him, Where are you going? He answered to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. Then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said to him, run, tell the young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Do you get that picture? God's angel is saying to God's messenger, Zechariah, this place is going to grow so big. Remember, it had been destroyed. It had no walls. The temple had not been rebuilt. They had been judged. It had been 70 years. But this place is going to grow so big that you can't put a wall around it, is what he's saying. And then beyond that, he says, not only will you not be able to build a wall around it because so many people will come and so many people will be blessed, but I, God myself, will be a sovereign wall around it, a fire. Go back to our science fiction movies like a God force field around the city. How many of us would like a God force field around our lives, right? That'd be kind of cool. God, just give me a little dome of protection, right? Include my family, too. Maybe my household, you know. Give me this dome of protection, God, where nothing gets in unless you want it in. You know what? You already got it. And if something gets in, it's because God intends it to get in or God allows it to get in because God is trying to teach you something through that something. Go on with the Scripture He says, and I will be a wall of fire around it. And I will be its glory within. God's fire demonstrates God's presence. And glory within. Verse 6. Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have scattered you to the four winds of the heaven, declares the Lord. Come, O Zion, escape from uh, living in the daughter of Babylon. So in other words, come back from captivity. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. After he has honored me and sent me against the nations that have plundered you. For whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. God saying, you're the apple of my eye. Even though I allowed nations to judge you. I'm bringing you back. I'm going to restore you. Verse 9. I will surely raise my hand against them, the nations, and that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. That's us. That's us. Gentile people, because of what God did to restore his people, the line of Jesus went on. Jesus was born, lived a sinless life, died to save us from our sins. And when we trust Christ as our Savior and Lord, then we become part of that family, that nation that is God's inheritance. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem, be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling You remember those Tweety Bird, Sylvester the Cat cartoons? And there'd be that big dog Spike, you know, that was like bulldog, huge face, little backside in the doghouse on a chain. And Tweety or Sylvester would try to do something, well Sylvester's trying to get Tweety and Tweety Bird baits Sylvester that way to wake up the dog. And the big dog gets woke up, and Sylvester is history then, right? Because the big dog's going to get the cat. When God says, "He's roused himself, it's not a cartoon. It's not a dog and a cat. It's the God of the whole universe saying that I'm going to bless my people. Anything that's wrong, I'm going to take care of them. Anything they need, I'm going to give them. Anybody that's coming against them, I'm going to defend them. I haven't asked you to turn anywhere else today. I've got a scripture I want you to turn to, Psalm 46. So Psalms, the book of Psalms, over to your left, about in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 46. And some of you will be familiar with Psalm 46.10. And we know maybe the first phrase of Psalm 4610, but we oftentimes miss the second two phrases. Psalm 4610 says, be still and know that I am God. Amen. We hear that when we're in times of crisis and we come before God and we pray to him. And when we're anxious and we're fretting and we're worried, all things that are natural human emotions that sometimes get the best of us, that we need God to quiet our spirit and be still and know that he is God, i.e. he's sovereign, he rules, he reigns, he's going to bless his people. Be still and know that I am God. And then notice what it says next that so often we miss. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in earth. If his request that we be still and know that he's God's not enough, he wants us to know that he will be exalted among all peoples, all places, all times. He's sovereign. We can trust him. The reason we can be still and know that he is God is that he is God. And he is sovereign. And he does love us. And he cares about our situation. Turn back in your Bibles to Zechariah. We're going to get to Zechariah chapter 3 in a minute, but I've got your application question. If God blesses His people, what leads to God's forgiveness? What's happened in chapter 2, verse 1 through 13, is God says, I've forgiven you, and I'm going to judge those who judged you. You. what leads to god's forgiveness i would say simply humility is at the bottom of it but confession that what you've done is wrong and repentance and turning from your sins as far as the east is from the west so far has god removed our sin from us First John one nine, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What leads to God's forgiveness is our asking. You don't have to do anything fancy. You don't have to go to a confessional. You don't have to talk to anybody else. You yourself can talk to the sovereign God of the whole universe and say, God, I agree that what I've done is sin. I confess it as sin. I want to repent and turn from it and go the other way. And He will forgive you. Can I get an amen? God blesses His people when we ask for His forgiveness. Let's get to the fourth point on your outline this morning. And that is that God purifies His people. God purifies His people. There's this interesting picture in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. It's different than what we've seen in the three other visions we've dealt with this morning. Let me just read it for you. Then He showed me Joshua the high priest. So Joshua is a real person, a real high priest in Jerusalem at that time. So He's showing up in Jerusalem. The vision like a dream at night that Zechariah is having, just like when you have dreams, people you know are in your dreams. The high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So the angel's there, maybe Jesus incarnate, and Satan himself is there with the high priest of God's people. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? This is scriptural as well. This idea of Jerusalem itself pulled out of the fire. In other words, God saved his people. And they're speaking about Joshua the high priest. And he's symbolic of God's relationship with all the people. Verse 3. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angels. I don't know about you, you know, we don't have priests as Baptists. But maybe you've been to a Catholic church, or you've seen certainly pictures of the Pope when he's like, you know, got his fancy robe on and all that stuff. I don't think you see the Pope dirty. I mean, he's always clean and looks nice. I'll never forget, May 29th, 1989. I was flying from um, DFW to Anchorage, Alaska. And I didn't think about what I might see until I saw it. I'm flying along the Canadian coastline and the panhandle of Alaska that sticks down across Canada there. And literally, we're just out over the water a little bit. So I'm sitting on the right-hand side of the airplane. And I can see the coastline. And it's just gorgeous. Green trees and mountains and rivers coming down. And here's a glacier and there's a glacier. And I'm just like, wow, this is amazing. How gorgeous is this? And that pristine Alaskan coastline. And then I see something that almost made me want to throw up. I'm like, what in the world is that? This black stuff for miles, hundreds of miles along the coastline onto the coastline, out under the airplane, where I couldn't even see to the other side. I asked the dude sitting on the other side, I said, is that black stuff on the other side of the airplane as well? He said, yeah, man, it goes all the way out to the horizon. He said, it's the oil spill from the Exxon Valdez. We got a picture of it. I mean, this is a small picture, and it's hard to see because of our screen here and the lights on it. But all that dark stuff is oil. And that's not the Valdez. That is the Valdez with another ship alongside it. Trying to get it uh, to Seattle where they could repair it. March 24th, 1989. It hit an iceberg. Its radar system was out. The captain was drunk. A third mate was at the helm. Worst at that time. Oil spill in American history. Something like. 42 or 43 million gallons of oil on 1,300 miles of coastline. And when I saw it from the sky and we're just flying for another hour and all I'm seeing is black, black, black. God spoke to my spirit. And I wrote a phrase I'll never forget about that oil spill, that it was like black sin being smudged on the white high priest robe. So when I read Zechariah chapter 3 here, and I see this image of God's priest Zechariah in a filthy robe, not in a clean, resplendent robe, showing God's glory and God's holiness, God's perfection, I think of sinfulness, I think of the spill of the Exxon Valdez that visualized that for me. Go on in verse 4. The angel of the Lord said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. That's symbolic as well of God's presence and his glory. So I put a clean turban on his head and clothed him. With the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. So now he's speaking to the priest who's been purified, who's been clean, ready to go to work for God, symbolic of God forgiving his people, symbolic of God's presence among his people. This is what he said, verse 7. If you walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. If you walk in my ways and keep my requirements. If you've got a Bible that's paper and you can underline that, maybe you need to. Walk in my ways, keep my requirements. If you've got an electronic Bible, hit the highlight on that verse. Email it to yourself or something like that. Do something so you can remember that verse. If you walk in my ways. Not unlike the word that is translated walk in Greek, peripateo. That means live. Live. It means the same thing here. It literally is the word halak in Hebrew. But it is translated figuratively as the way you live. It's not just talking the talk. It's walking the walk. And then just to make sure we got it clear. He says, if you walk in my ways and keep my commandments. In other words, if you obey. Everybody say obey. If you walk. In my ways and keep my requirements. Obedience. That's what God is after. Verse 8. Listen. Listen, it says. That's the same word as it begins the Shema. It is the word Shema in Hebrew. Hear, O Lord, the Lord, O God. The Lord is one. Deuteronomy six, four. Listen, O oh, high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm in Zechariah 3.8 now. I am going to bring my servant the branch. Capital B in my Bible, gets talking about Jesus. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that stone and I will engrave a scripture on it and says the Lord Almighty and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And in that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. Again, symbols of God's prosperity and blessing, declares the Lord Almighty. In other words, God says, no matter what your sin was, I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to purify you. Your application question there, and Leslie will click us back over, is where should I seek holiness? God is saying, I'm going to make Joshua, the priest who was in filthy robes, symbolic of the sin of his people, I'm going to restore him, put new robes on him. And what he's after in all of us is holiness, that we walk the walk, that we obey what we're supposed to, that by the way we conduct our lives, we pursue personal holiness. So that's my application question to you to sum us up and bring us to a conclusion today. In your life this morning, where do you need? Holiness. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, I think about that song, The grace that is greater than all our sin. And I think about the fact that I'm a sinner saved by grace. As is everyone here who's trusted Jesus as their Savior. And that some folks that are here today still need to make the decision to turn from themselves and commit their life to follow Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord. And those of us that are already believers in Jesus, it may be that we need to confess something this morning. That we need to say, God, I agree with you. I have sinned. Even though I'm your child. Even though I'm saved. But I keep on dealing with this sin. And I need you to forgive me from it. And I need to repent and turn from it. So God, whatever it is this morning that you need to do in our hearts. In order to restore that love relationship that you worked so hard to build in us. Would you do it? We thank you for Zechariah and his visions so many years ago that remind us that you pursue a continual love relationship with us that is real and personal. And our response to you is humility that leads to confession and repentance so that our relationship with you might be pure and holy. Thank you, God, for your love for us and your word that teaches us. Holy Spirit among us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.